Thank you again for who you are, that you are the, the God of the universe, you are the, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that there is nobody like you, and that we have the privilege of coming before you in prayer and in worship and in study, that you have given us your holy inspired word, that it is, uh, has been preserved for us and is available to us. God, we pray that you would help us to have a better understanding of who you are, of these things that we're going to be looking at today. Help us to truly appreciate the fact that we have the, the words of the Almighty God before us and we get to uh, take an hour to just sit and soak in them and uh, meditate on them and contemplate who you are and who we are in light of you. God, we thank you for this church building. Thank you for this church body. God, thank you for all the, the blessings and privileges that you've given to us. And I pray that we will use these things for your glory, for your good, that we would be, that we would decrease and that you might increase. God, we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. So we are still in the Gospel of Mark. We will be for quite some time. But by way of review, what are some distinctives that we've seen up until this point about Mark's gospel? What is different and unique and distinct about Mark's gospel? It's the the shortest gospel. It is indeed the shortest of all four of the gospels. One interesting fact um, about our text today, well, today and next week, this whole um, discourse about Jairus' daughter and the, the hemorrhaging woman is that Mark's account is longer than any of the other accounts, despite the fact that the Gospel of Mark is the shortest. His account of these two events is longer than Matthew and Luke and John. Um, well, it's not in John, but Matthew uh, accounts nine verses to this, these two stories, Luke 17 verses, and Mark has 23 verses that he devotes to this section. Any ideas why that might be? That Mark decides this section needs a, a little bit more? No ideas. Is, uh, is Mark the one, like his account, is that the one where he's talking about like, Jesus as a servant? Amen. Good job. Yes, Mark is focusing on Jesus as a servant. And that's exactly what he's doing in these verses. He is serving this woman who has had this blood issue for 12 years, and he's serving Jairus by raising this little girl from the dead. You can see his compassion, his servant-heartedness very well within these verses. And so that is another distinctive that we see of, of Jesus. He is the suffering servant, isn't he? What is Mark 10:45? Anybody have that ready for us? I'm supposed to have it memorized. Yeah, we'll get there. By the end of Mark, hopefully we will all know Mark 10.45. Anybody have that off the top of their head? Mark 10.45. Even the Son of Man... Yes. All right, good. We, we worked our way around. We did a little circle. That was good. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is what we have identified as the key verse of Mark, that it really kind of draws out and identifies Jesus as this servant. And so I think that's why uh, 
Mark spends so much time on these verses that we're going to be looking at today. Wasn't this also the first study Jesus Mark was Mark that he has raised anybody from the dead? Yes. Yeah, a couple times we see him raise people from the dead, but yeah, it's kind of a big deal to raise somebody back to life. So his miracles had a bit of progression. Mm-hmm. No, that's okay. Yeah. Well, he's talking progression of both uh, Jesus' actions and the apostles' exposure to Jesus' power and authority. Amen. And they see they were more awed by that than all the other years that he did. Good. And what has been the, the response to this uh, increasing exposure to Jesus' power and authority? Um, how are people responding as Jesus' ministry is just catapulted and continues to increase up until the point of raising people from the dead? How are people responding to these things? There's more people following. There's more people wanting to see. Yeah. But some are scared. Yeah, some are afraid and asking him to leave. Yes, good. So the, the crowds are growing, but they're not all embracing Jesus. And what did you say, Logan? People are scared. Yeah, they're, they're afraid. They see his power, they see this authority, and rather than bowing the knee, they, um, well, I think even the people who do bow the knee, they, they tremble in fear and they, they subsequently bow the knee, but there are people who are fearful and uh, back away and tell Jesus to, to depart, to be gone, right? Um, we've seen, so, mixed reactions from the crowd. The disciples are those who have bowed the knee and they're, they're following along, but even at this point, I don't think the disciples have fully grasped who Jesus is and uh, the, the height of his authority, of his sovereignty, that he is in fact God. Uh, we'll, we'll get there eventually, but at this point, I don't think that's where they're at. Um, the, the demons, however, what's the, the demon's response to Jesus? They know who he is. Yeah, yeah, they know and they're, they're afraid, right? They have a, a healthy fear and respect for who Jesus is. They, they understand you are the son of man, um, but they still want this, this separation. What do we have to do with each other, son of man? Um, are you here to, to punish us before the appointed time? So <clears throat> while the, the people, the crowds, and even the disciples, they haven't fully understood who Christ is, the demons, they know this is the son of man. We see, well, if we turn back to the beginning of Mark, Mark 1.1, 1, 1, as Mark is introducing his gospel, it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So right off the bat, Mark is introducing, this is the, the gospel, this is the beginning of the gospel, and it's about Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen anointed one who has come, who is the Son of God. So he identifies right off the bat, this is the Son of God. And we should recognize that, that phrase, that title, Son of God, not as being any less than God, but as being equivalent with God. So in John chapter 5, chapter 8, chapter 10, when Jesus uses this phrase and he says that he is the Son of God, people pick up stones to stone him because they understand that he is, it says, he being a man is making himself equal with God. That was the understanding of the, the first century audience that he was preaching to. And so right off the bat, that's how Mark introduces Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. 
It's not until chapter 8 when Peter recognizes that Jesus is a Christ. But in Mark's account, he doesn't call him the Son of God. You get over to Matthew uh, chapter 16, and he, Peter there confesses that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But in Mark's account of that same experience, he just says, you are the Christ. But at the end of Mark's gospel, uh, towards the end of Mark 15, almost into Mark 16, um, we see the centurion confess that Jesus is a Christ. So Mark 15, 39 says, When the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way that he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. And so we see this kind of progression throughout the Bible, or throughout Mark's account of uh, the gospel as well, that because Jesus is, we're seeing more and more exposure to the power of Christ, to the authority of Christ, people are beginning to, to put pieces together and to understand a little bit more. This is indeed the Son of God. This is not just any man. This is the Messiah. This is God on earth. And it's not until the very end when the centurion of all people, uh, a Gentile, proclaims this truly was the Son of God. And so we see that progression going throughout the, the narrative as well. Um, let's see. What geographical area does Mark focus on in following the ministry of Christ? You guys remember that? Getting very studious here, talking about geography. We've yeah. thrown up a map a couple times. What's that? Galilee? Yes. Yeah, Mark focuses in on Galilee, as do the, the other synoptic writers, uh, Luke and Matthew as well. They'll focus on Jesus' ministry in Galilee, whereas John, he focuses in more on Judea and Samaria and how Jesus works in those areas. But uh, recently, in, in chapter 4 and chapter 5, uh, where has Jesus been specifically in geographically, where has Jesus been in our recent studies? By the sea. Yes, by the sea. So starting off in chapter 4, pretty much all of chapter 4 took place by the sea, right? On the, the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And then he got in the boat and he traveled across the east side of the Sea of Galilee. That's when we had the, the big storm and uh, the disciples were, were freaked out and terrified. And they, they woke Jesus up, you even care about us? And... Uh, we had that whole event. <clears throat> then he landed on the, the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And that's when he had this encounter with the demoniac, right? With Legion. And what was the, the response that Jesus had from uh, his encounter with the demoniac and uh, his experience on the east side of the Sea of Galilee? Did they ask him to leave? Yes. They, they did ask him to leave. And, and why is it that they asked him to, to leave that country of the Gerasenes or, or the Gadarenes? Yeah, they were afraid. They were terrified because of what um, the, the power that they saw in Christ, right? Yes, Joseph. Do you think um, they also could have been upset that a lot of their swine had perished? Uh, people have, have said that before, but that's not what the text says. Um, so if you want to read in between the lines, uh, you could come to that conclusion. But we're told, uh, let's look at Luke 8. It tells us there specifically why it is that they told them to leave. So Luke 8, 
37, it says, And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding districts asked him to leave them, for they were gripped with great fear, and he got into the boat and returned. And so, yeah, I'm not completely discounting the fact that maybe they were upset about their, their swine being killed, but um, just because they had run into the water and were dead doesn't mean that they weren't useful, right? They could still take those swine and, and sell them and eat them. And um, of course, it might be difficult to get rid of 2,000. I'm sure they had a, a big luau, right? A, a big swine feast. Um, but we're not told specifically that that's why they asked Jesus to leave. I know that's a, a common understanding, but the text says they were afraid. And that's why they wanted him to leave, because they had encountered God in the flesh, and they had come face to face with his, his great power and authority, and it freaked them out. They were terrified. Well, they were used to demons. They might have just, some of them might have thought he was just another part of that. Yeah, people had already accused him of that, right? That you cast out I mean, they were demons by the power of Satan. For different reasons, but primarily he was God. Yeah. All right, well, let's jump into our text today. So he, at this point, has left the, uh, the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and he's crossed back over, or he is in the process of crossing back over after these people saying, no, we don't want you here anymore because of their, their fear, their terror of their encounter with Christ. So let's actually open up to, to Luke. Um, let's start in Luke chapter 8. And will somebody read for us verses 40 through 56? This is a, a parallel passage to what we're going to be looking at in Mark. And this will highlight a, a couple of different things that Mark doesn't necessarily focus on. And then we'll tie that back in with where we're at in Mark. So who has Luke 8, 40 through 56? I'll read it. All right. It is a big one. So it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all awaiting him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. Now a woman, having a flow of blood for about twelve years, who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood stopped. Hmm. Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those with them said, Master, the multitudes throng you and press you, and you say, Who touched me? But Jesus said, Somebody touched me, for I perceive power going out from me. Now, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before him, she declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her, Daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, do not be afraid, only believe, and she will be made well. When he came to, into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl. Now when all wept and mourned for her, but he said, Do not weep, she is not dead, but sleeping. 
and they laughed at him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. But he put them all out, took her by the hand, and called, saying, Little girl, arise. Then her spirit returned, she arose immediately, and he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Amen. Thanks, Jim. All right, let's turn back to Mark chapter 5. That's where we're going to be. Again, that was just a, a parallel passage. <clears throat> we're going to be starting in Mark 5.21. And we see, again, right off the bat in 21, that Jesus had crossed back over again in the boat to the other side, and a large crowd gathered around him so that he stayed by the seashore. And so right when Jesus comes back, he has a, a large crowd there. So Jesus has officially reached local celebrity status. Uh, I think he's probably been there for a while, but we can definitely say that he is a, a local celebrity, that he has a, a lot of people who are interested in what he's doing, who are knowing about what he's doing. Uh, again, looking back at Luke 8.40, it said that people welcomed him for they had been waiting there for him. So they were already sitting there waiting for, for Jesus to come back. They had missed him while he was gone, being asked to leave from the region of the Gerasenes. And, of course, Jesus knew that this would happen throughout his ministry, that there would be people who would uh, come and, and want to, to be around him and want to, to lift him up and raise him up, and that he would have this, this following. But Jesus was still pretty sensitive about his popularity. Um, we saw just uh, a chapter ago in chapter four that this is why Jesus was speaking in parables so that not everybody would hear and understand lest they would believe and, and come to him. They would believe and repent. And Jesus didn't want that. He didn't want this big following, this big crowd. Uh, John chapter six talks about how Jesus snuck off because people were sneak, seeking to make him king. They wanted to, to lift him up and raise him up and exalt him as king and, and crown him as king. And they wanted for him to usher in the kingdom right then. And Jesus said, no, I'm, I'm going to distance myself from that. And so he actually snuck off so that he could avoid such popularity. Uh, several times, again, in the, the Gospel of John, Jesus says, my, my hour has not yet come. He says it in chapter 2. He says it a few times in chapter 7. This isn't my time to, to be raised up. And when he is to be raised up, he's to be raised up on a cross, not to be raised up on his throne. This isn't the, the time or the reason, the purpose for which Jesus has come. And yet, um, remind me again what Mark 10.45 says. That he came to serve, not to serve. Yes. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, right? But to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, even though he's not seeking to, to gather all these people around him, even though he's not um, seeking to gather this following at this time, his hour has not yet come, he still loves on the crowd. He still embraces the crowd. He doesn't tell them, no, get, get out of here. I'm doing my own thing. That's not who Jesus is, right? Jesus is loving and compassionate and uh, servant-hearted. And we see that so much throughout this, this gospel of Mark. Uh, there's a stupid joke really, in ministry, that ministry would be great if it weren't for all the people. And uh, it, it gets chuckles and it gets laughs because people are difficult, uh, but people are great. And that certainly wasn't Jesus' understanding of people. Jesus was the good shepherd, right? 
and he knew his sheep and his sheep knew him and they knew his voice and he had a, a heartfelt compassion and love for them. Uh, he didn't have that mentality of, oh, I, I would take ministry if it weren't for the people. That's not Jesus. That's not who the Son of Man is. And so it says here in verse 21 that when this crowd, or rather when Jesus gets here on the, the edge of the Sea of Galilee, this crowd is there gathered around him. They had already been, already been waiting for him, according to Luke. And so he stayed by the seashore. And what is it you imagine that Jesus is doing there by the seashore with this big crowd around him? Absolutely. That's what he came for, right? The Son of Man came to, to preach and to teach. That was his purpose. And so, no doubt, that's what he's doing there by the seashore. It's not what the, the text says, but I think it's a, a healthy uh, guess as to, to what he's doing. He's sitting there by the seashore, likely teaching and preaching. And then let's pick up the, the rest of this text in verse 22. It says that one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him and a crowd, a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. And so we see here, um, that Jesus is willing to be interrupted. He was there and he was ministering, no doubt, to this large crowd. He had this great uh, audience that was there listening to him and, and wanting to be there. And then he has one man come up and Jesus, for this one man, was willing to be interrupted. He was willing to, to set aside the, the entire crowd so that he could go and serve this one man, so that he could go and reach out to and again, show compassion to this one man who really came up in, in quite a, a humble way. This man who was a, a synagogue official didn't have this, this air of entitlement about him. He didn't come and say, Jesus, you have to do this, right? I need you to do this. He was really pretty humble in the way that he approached Jesus. And Jesus was, uh, again, willing to, to leave the crowd to go and serve this man Jairus. Uh, what are some other things that we see from the text about this, this man? What do we know about Jairus from just these couple of verses, 22 through 24? Ruler of the synagogue. Yes, he was a ruler of the synagogue. And so being a, a ruler of the synagogue or a, a synagogue official, that's a, a distinct title or position from being a scribe or a Pharisee. So he wasn't a, a teacher in the synagogue, uh, but in, instead he, he would care for the scrolls. He would show up and he would open up the, the building. He would care for the facilities. Uh, he would offer oversight and uh, make sure that it was cleaned and, and closed, that the, the services were being ran well. That would be his job. He was kind of like a, a deacon in our, our modern churches, caring to the physical needs of the building and the different things that would need to be arranged for the services. Uh, in Acts 13.15, we have a verse that talks about a synagogue official, and we get a little bit of a glimpse into what it is that they would do. It says that after reading the law and the prophets, the synagogue official sent to them, saying, brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, go ahead and say it. 
So he's kind of orchestrating the, the order of the service and saying, okay, well, this has been done, so, so now you come in, and if you have something to do, um, it's like saying, all right, well, Jamie, it's time to get up and pray, or um, all right, you need to, Joseph, it's time to, to get up and preside, right? You're just kind of nudging them in the shoulder. This was the, the job of the synagogue official. And this synagogue official, again, remember he's back on the, the west side of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus had experience there before with synagogue officials, or with in synagogues, rather. So this may be the same synagogue that Jesus was in back in chapter 1 when he cast out a demon. Um, and for, for whatever reason, this synagogue official, Jairus, he seems to be somewhat familiar with Jesus as he approaches him and asks him to take care of his daughter, whether or not that's a, a firsthand experience that he's had with Jesus or just hearing about Jesus word of mouth. Uh, remember, Jesus is, again, a, a local celebrity at this point, so at least on par with like your, your local weatherman or uh, radio DJ, he has some sort of popularity in the, the region. And Jairus feels comfortable enough to, to come up and to approach him. He seems to know enough about Jesus to entrust his daughter's life to, uh, to this teacher. Uh, of course, you and I know that he's much more than a teacher, but um, this is who Jairus comes up and approaches because um, he has some kind of trust in Jesus. And so while Jairus wasn't a, a scribe or a Pharisee in the synagogue, he no doubt rubbed shoulders with the scribes and the Pharisees that these men were actually his superiors. And what was their take on Jesus? How did the scribes and the Pharisees respond to Jesus doing what he was doing and being in, in the synagogues in their region? Well, there's only two options in the face of this that the ascribe the power to God or to Satan, and they chose to ascribe it to Satan. Yes, they had ascribed his power to Satan, um, assuming that what he was doing was not godly, it was not uh, honorable, it wasn't holy, but it was wicked and evil. And they actually sought to, to kill him back in chapter 3, verse 6. It, they would gather together with the, the Herodians and they sought how they might destroy him. They were conspiring with each other. What could we do to, to get this man, to, to get rid of him, to get him out of our synagogues, to get him out of our region? And so you think about it, and Jairus, he was actually kind of going out on a limb, potentially, in coming to Jesus. Because, again, his, his superiors, these men who he rubbed shoulders with, they didn't like Jesus. They wanted him dead. They thought that he was doing these works by the power of Satan. And yet Jairus was willing to approach him. And so his request was likely frowned upon by the scribes. I don't think that they would approve of him coming to Jesus in the manner that he did. And the request itself really displays a, a level of faith. Oh, I'm doing things I shouldn't be doing. Uh, really shows a, a level of faith that Jairus has in Christ. Uh, first of all, for, for coming to Jesus and thinking that Jesus had the power and the ability to heal his daughter, his only daughter, as we're told back in Luke 8. And secondly, for not being afraid of the, the repercussions. He didn't have this fear of man that um, is so common to the rest of us, that the scribes and the Pharisees who were over him and, and what they might think or what they might say about him, uh, 
that didn't have enough influence on him to prevent him from coming to Jesus and asking for Jesus to heal his daughter. And we see um, that he does that in verse 23. It says that he implored Jesus earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And so this is really urgent when he's saying that she is at the point of death. Literally, she is at the, the doorstep of death. She is right there on the edge. Uh, this shows that there's a, a real sense of urgency. There's not a whole lot of time that this little girl has before um, she's going to die. So time is of the essence. We need to keep that in mind as we go throughout this story because we're going to remember that Jairus' request is going to be interrupted. So this urgency is really important. Yes, Jim? I think this was just kind of a case where when people get desperate, they put aside their pride and call them God. Yeah. I think a lot of the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees, or I don't know about the Sadducees, a lot of the Pharisees believed Jesus was of God, but they didn't want to admit it. Mm -hmm. It was a challenge to their authority and their, their income. Yeah, yeah, it's costly to, to follow Christ in that circle, right? It would cost them potentially their job and their income and um, certainly their, their population reputation with uh, the other people, with their colleagues. Uh, we do see a couple of officials follow after Jesus. You guys know who those are? The, the scribes or the Pharisees who come to Christ, not always openly. Sometimes at night. Joseph yes. Joseph of Arimathea, the, the man who uh, secured the, the body of Christ and buried it in his own tomb, right? And uh, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, yeah. And Nicodemus was also mentioned there uh, in John 19-ish, I think, with Joseph of Arimathea, that he who, in John chapter 3, had come to Jesus by night, uh, seemingly for fear of what his uh, colleagues would think, uh, later on, he seemed to more publicly associate himself with Christ. So Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, those are two examples of people who did embrace Christ. And we're not sure of where this man, Jairus, was before, if he was, in fact, put into this position, this willingness to approach Christ because of the, the desperate situation that he found himself in, or if perhaps he was a, an open follower of Christ uh, prior to this. But this for whatever reason, it seems to be uh, a pivotal point in his life where he comes out and we're told at this point that he is, in fact, a, a believer in Christ. Any other thoughts or questions at this point? Do you think, man, I don't want to read too much, but I mean, he, he saw the, like a lot of people who worked under the scribes and Pharisees, he knew they were hypocrites and not the real deal. And then, yeah. You know what I mean? So a lot of people probably wanted to find out about Jesus because... They could see the jealousy and the, the, the attitude the Pharisees and scribes had towards him. So they kind of thought, well, I don't trust these guys, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that their, their hypocrisy was pretty apparent, especially as you got closer to the, the inner circle, so to speak, of the, the inner workings of the synagogue and how everything was working. And uh, we'll talk here in a little bit about some of the the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and their desire to be seen and to be noticed. Uh, but that seems to be pretty apparent um, 
reading Matthew 23 and Jesus saying, woe to you scribes, you, you hypocrites, you brew of vipers and just uh, nailing them, boom, 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 one after another. seems like there was no lack of uh, target for you to, to shoot at. And I'm sure that Jairus did get a, a close glimpse at that. All right, well, in uh, verse 24, we see that he went in, or he went off with this man. So Jesus went off with, with Jairus, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. So this, this large crowd is now going with Jesus, who's going with this man, Jairus. So this very private matter of this man losing, or about to lose his only daughter, has now become a very public matter. He has this... Uh, large crowd following after him. Uh, this really was Jesus' whole life, if you stop and think about it, that Jesus didn't have a, a very solid private life. He had to work to make a, a private life for himself to, again, sneak off, to draw away from people so they don't raise him up and make him king, so he can sneak off and have some quiet time in prayer. Uh, everything that Jesus did was very public. Uh, love it or hate it, I think... Um, he, I'm sure, being a, a human, that there were times when he didn't want the, the large crowd pressing around in around him, but he was always in that kind of situation. Again, local celebrity. And now Jairus is being introduced into Jesus' world and having this, this large crowd follow him in a, a situation that I definitely wouldn't want a large crowd to be involved with. And um, that's the, the situation that he now finds himself in, reaching out to Jesus and all the crowd is, is coming along with them. He's getting them for free. And I wouldn't imagine that he would really want them. All right, let's move on from Jairus for now and look at this interrupting uh, experience, I suppose, of the hemorrhaging woman. So Mark five twenty-five through 29. Will somebody read those verses for us? Mark five twenty-five through 29. Who's got that? All right, Jerry. A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had thrown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak, for she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. All right. So we have this woman going through this horrific ordeal of, of hemorrhaging for, for how long? Twelve years. For Twelve years. That's quite a while, right? She has this, this physical ailment, uh, this hemorrhaging. William Lane, he says that it's common to think of chronic hemorrhaging from the womb but from Mark's description, it is not possible to know the cause of her loss of blood. So textually, there's no reason for us to, or no clue necessarily for us to know what kind of loss of blood this is, what kind of hemorrhaging it is. Uh, but most people do tend to see this as an ailment, this ailment as a, a menstrual issue that she's dealing with. So for, again, 12 years, 144 months of dealing with irregular, unnatural, likely painful uh, flow of blood that she has this, this physical ailment that she's been going through for 12 years. And in addition to the, the physical 
pain and discomfort, uh, I, I think we have to assume that there was also a, a discomfort and unease of not knowing what it was that she was dealing with. Um, I know that we've been through that with Brittany, not knowing what some of her health issues were. And I know there are people in the church right now who've, who are going through that and having these, these symptoms and just not knowing is, that's a bummer. If, if you're in that point where you're like, okay, well, I'm going to go take this test. I'm going to go see another doctor and take another test. And you almost get to the point where you're taking a test for something that's really bad. And you're like, well, I just hope that it comes back positive because at least then we'll, we'll know what the problem is. And uh, I imagine that she was going through the same thing. She was seeing doctor after doctor and she still didn't know what the problem was. In fact, it was getting worse. Um, so she had the, the physical pain of this ailment. She had the uh, emotional unrest of not knowing what's going on, not having solid answers. And then in addition to all that, this would make her ceremonially unclean, that this would come with uh, a degree of uh, social shame. There's an, an element of shame that goes along with being ceremonially unclean. There's a, a social stigma there that wouldn't allow her to really be in community with people like she would want to be in community. She wouldn't be accepted or welcomed. Um, the very people that she would typically be in community with would shun her because of the fact that she is ceremonially unclean because of her, her physical ailment. Uh, this is similar to what we talked about back in chapter one when we were looking at the, the leper, remember, who had to go around and pronounce and declare, unclean, unclean, wherever he went, because if anybody else came into contact with him, they too would become unclean. And so this woman, if even her own family, her own husband, if he were to, to touch her, he would become unclean. Um, you can read more about this. We won't go there. But Leviticus 15, verses 19 through 33, outlines um, the, the fact that she is or would be in this condition considered unclean. Uh, not only her herself, but anybody else who touches her, anybody else who uh, comes into contact with her or anything that she has touched or come into contact with would all be considered unclean. Yes, Steve. Well, she spent all she had. Yes. And was only getting worse. So now she's at the position of life of being destitute. Yeah. Basically, I'd have to say maybe homeless. Yeah. Because if she has no more money and she spent everything she had, then she is reduced down to nothing and getting worse. Yeah. So she's at rock bottom, right? So she has the, the physical stuff, the emotional stuff, the, the social stigma. She's lost all of her money, gone to doctor after doctor. She still has no answers. Uh, and in fact, she is, she's gotten worse. Um, let me... You remember at the time, most people felt like this was God's punishment she was, for her sin. Yeah. She was some kind of sinner and God was doing this to her. Yeah, we see that in John chapter 9 too with the, the blind man. Who sinned this man or his parents? That was the, the understanding. So, yeah, people would be like, okay, well, obviously God is not happy with her, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep my distance from her, not just because she is uh, ceremonially unclean, but obviously I, I don't want any of that, that bad voodoo stuff to, to rub off on me, right? Um, let me read to you what, what Julius Proust says. Um, he points out the fact that the Talmud, uh, the, the historic, the Jewish history, uh, it records a number of common medical treatments for such an ailment as what she went through. And 
these are some of the, the treatments that he says. He says that one remedy from the Talmud consisted of drinking a goblet of wine containing a powder compounded from rubber, alum, and garden crocuses. I didn't know what that was. Those are flowers. So mix all that stuff together and, and drink it, and that's supposed to make her better. Another treatment consisted of a dose of Persian onions cooked in wine administered with the summons arise out of your flow of blood. So you take some, some wine flavored or some onion flavored wine and you drink it and you, you say this little spell, this little charm, uh, arise out of your flow of blood, be gone. And that was their, their medical diagnosis. That was the, the prescription that the doctor would give. Or other physicians prescribed sudden shock or the carrying of ashes of an ostrich ostrich eggs in certain cloth. And depending on what kind of ailment it was, it would vary what kind of cloth you put these ostrich ashes in. Um, so the, the medical treatments were not very good, right? You could see why she didn't have a whole lot of success. And she went from doctor to doctor to doctor. Nobody was able to fix her. She became poor and destitute. And uh, Mark says that she, she even got worse. Uh, it's kind of funny that uh, Dr. Luke left that part out. He didn't say that she got worse from visiting all these doctors. He just said that she was incurable. Um, but Mark was pretty upfront and said, no, she got worse. That this uh, issue of, of blood not only continued, but it actually grew worse. And uh, so she... She comes to, to Jesus and she reaches out to Jesus for, for help. Uh, any other thoughts or questions? Well, kind of crazy stuff, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yes. There are a number of different things that we could point at and say perhaps it was this, but yeah. Whatever it was, we know that it was sovereignly ordained, right? That God not only knew what she had, but he had orchestrated events that she would contract this, this ailment. And we see the, the display of his sovereignty and the fact that he is able to relieve her of this ailment, that he is in absolute control of, of all these things. So she comes up and she reaches out to, to just touch the fringe of his garment, the fringe of his cloak, thinking surely that's going to make me well. So uh, this isn't the, the only time that people had done this. There were other people who were healed by touching Jesus' cloak. Uh, back in 3.10, it says that, many had healed, that he had met, healed many people with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. And they were healed as a result. And what about 656? Who's got that? What does 656 say in Mark? And wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and entreating him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured. All right. So again, people reaching out, touching the fringe of his cloak. That's the same kind of verbiage that we see here in Mark chapter 5, to touch the fringe of his cloak or the, 
the tassels that would hang down. Have you guys seen modern Jewish people wear those tassels? Usually as undergarments, and they have the four little corners that come down, and uh, they're kind of like tied off pieces of clothing. Uh, that's what they were reaching out to touch. Let's turn back into numbers, back into the law, and read a little bit about that. So I'll be reading from Numbers 15, verses 37. Again, we're reading about these tassels of this cloak, of the garments that would, would hang down. It says, Numbers 15, 37, that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and that they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and to remember all the commandments of the Lord, so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes, after which you played the harlot, so that you may remember to do all my commandments and to be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out, of, out from the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So these tassels that were hanging down, they were to remind people to be holy. They were to be a symbol of how they were to not follow after their own ways, but to follow after God's ways. And they became pretty important. Um, I've been listening through 1 Samuel, uh, and Britt and I, we're beginning to read 1 Samuel. Um, in 1 Samuel 15, when Samuel rebuked Saul, remember in 1 Samuel 13, Saul decided he was going to go off and offer sacrifices. He wasn't going to wait for Samuel. Um, it, a couple chapters later, in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel comes up and he's rebuking Saul for this. And uh, let me just read to you verses 26 through 28. It says, But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. That's kind of a, a harsh rebuke, right? Um, says, as Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe, one of these tassels, likely, that we just read about, and tore it. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor, who is better than you. So Saul didn't like the fact that Samuel was rebuking him. And Samuel didn't like the fact that Saul was reaching out and tearing this tassel that he was wearing. And in fact, rebuked Saul for doing so. A little bit later on in 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel 24, we see David kind of sneaking up on Saul, who's in the cave, and cuts off the corner of his robe, or the, the tassel, uh, this piece of his garment that, again, represents his devotion to the Lord, represents his commitment to God. And uh, the tassels of these cloaks, they were already associated with honor, and they came to be associated with power and prestige, um, again, with, with being set apart and being holy. And so imagine how the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they might envision these, these tassels. What do you think they did with these tassels on their, their undergarments that represented holiness and um, being set apart, this power and prestige? Any, any thoughts as to what they did with them? They absolutely flaunted them. They they made sure that they showed. They increased them in length is what they did. So that they were longer and more prominent than, than other people's because this showed their devotion to God. This showed their power and authority. And so it's, I think it's uh, an understandable thing for us to 
suppose that this woman may have adopted a similar understanding, that these tassels represented power and these tassels represented uh, authority and that perhaps that's why she was reaching out to touch this, this tassel, this corner of this cloak of, of Jesus. And again, we've seen other people touch the, the cloak of, of Christ and hope for some kind of miraculous healing. And there were other non-biblical reasons why people would associate these things with healing. Um, different pagan reasons why people would associate uh, touching garments or, or cloaks with healing. But regardless of where she was in, in her mindset, she did. She reached out to touch this cloak, this tassel of Jesus. And this woman's ailment was healed immediately. That's important, especially in today's day and age of uh, our modern quote-unquote healings, right? That she didn't have to um, take any medication. This wasn't a gradual healing. She didn't have to endure any therapy. Um, she didn't have to, to plant a seed of faith or offer a, a pledge or a donation of any amount to receive this healing. Uh, but she was healed immediately. In verse 29, I'm not supposed to be in numbers anymore. Mark 5, 29 says that immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. So when it says that she felt in her body, it literally means that she knew within her that she was healed. Uh, gnosko, to, to know the word that we get um, knowledge or um, Gnostics, if you guys remember our studies on Gnosticism, that says that she knew immediately that she was healed. And then verse 30 says that immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself, that's the, the same word, but just heightened, uh, epigenosko, that he truly knew within himself that the power proceeding from him had gone out. And turning around to the crowd, he said, who has touched me? And so Jesus, being aware of the fact that she knew she was healed, and he truly knew that this power had gone out from him. Uh, this is a, a possibly difficult verse. Uh, John Grassmick says that there are two understandings of this verse. He says, one view maintains that God the Father healed the woman, and Jesus was not aware of it until afterwards. The other view is that Jesus himself, wishing to honor the woman's faith, willingly extended his healing power to her. Now, which of these two options do you suppose is true? The latter. The latter. Good job. I'm glad that that was a quick answer. The latter, right? Jesus is omniscient, right? He knows all things. He was not caught off guard by the fact that this woman was healed. It's not something that he just knew afterwards. Uh, but he is in absolute control of his power. And she wasn't somehow manipulating his, his power or his authority um, to cause this miraculous event. Jesus knew that she had faith and blessed her by healing her. Uh, there's no kind of name it, claim it garbage going on here where you just say, I proclaim in the name of Jesus that this should happen. Uh, that's not biblical, right? That's not what this woman was engaging in. So let's read these last few verses here, verses 30 through 34 of Mark 5. It says, Immediately Jesus perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. 
But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So it's kind of interesting to think about the, the woman truly was the only one who understood Jesus' question of who has touched me. Everybody else thought Jesus was nuts, right? Uh, back in Luke, it said that Peter called out and said, uh, uh, Jesus, everybody's touching you. And that was kind of the, the perception. But this woman, she knew. And she not only knew, but she was fearful. She was trembling because she knew that she had touched him and that this had an effect. She knew within herself. She had felt that uh, this healing power had taken effect and she was healed. In the, the same verse where Peter says, Jesus, everybody's touching you, it says that everybody else was denying the fact that they had touched Jesus. So this tells us that uh, there was some time that elapsed between Jesus' question and the woman's answer. So it's not as if he says, who touched me? And she says, oh yeah, that was me, like right away. There was enough time for people to look around and say, oh, I didn't touch him, I didn't touch him, did did you see you touch him? And Peter's like, everybody's touching you. So there's time that's elapsing right now. It's not just immediate. Um, in fact, this whole series, I think we have to understood, understand, has taken a, a bit of time. It's definitely more time than uh, what we just kind of feel reading through it. But I would guess an, maybe up to an hour or two is taking place as this whole thing is happening and Jesus is using this as an opportunity to teach and to love on this woman. Um, there's quite a bit of time that is elapsing as Jesus is having this encounter. And so this, this time elapsing before Jesus actually gives this answer, um, that'll come into play next week as we look at Jairus again and are brought back to what's going on with him. But for now, um, after this woman touches the fringe of Jesus' cloak, he could have just let her go and be healed, right? But he didn't. Uh, why do you suppose he did that? That he didn't just let her go off on her own? But he called out to her. I think he wanted to emphasize her faith. Yes. It was her faith that healed her. Yes. Faith in Jesus. Right. Yep. It wasn't on we don't know, but she doesn't go around to the Pharisees and touching all of their garments to see if any of them have power. Yeah, and Jesus will, will emphasize that, that your faith has made you well, not the, the touching of the cloak, but yeah, Jesus wanted to emphasize her faith. Uh, you have another thought, Jim? Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my father. Yes. I think he wanted the lady to speak up. Yep. Good. So she could have this public profession of faith. I think this really gives Jesus opportunity to show love and compassion to her, not just to, to heal her outward body, but come here and let me truly heal you. Let me show you that I care for you, that I love you. Um, and then this gives us opportunity to get insight into this compassion that Jesus has on her, that we have this story because of um, Jesus calling out to her and saying, who touched me? Um, Again, Mark 10.45, right? Son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. All right, so this woman's response was one of fear and trembling. We saw this back in 4.41, right? When 
there was a storm and people were afraid because they saw the power of Jesus. When Jesus cast the, the demons into the pigs, people were afraid and they asked him to leave. This woman too is afraid. That's the same word that we see there. Uh, I think, yes, it could be just fear of not wanting to come before Jesus. It could be embarrassment of um, not wanting to be seen in front of this whole crowd. But I think that there is definitely a, an aspect of awe and reverence for Jesus and who he is that we can uh, take from the text saying that she was fearful. Uh, in addition to this, in, in calling her back, Jesus calls her daughter, which is just a term of compassion and, and love. Um, it's the only time that Jesus uses this term in, in all of scripture, but to be a, a daughter of the king, um, that really shows compassion. He speaks peace over her. Um, that was a, a common uh, saying, common colloquialism of the day. Um, just peace be with you. But for this woman who for 12 years hasn't had peace in so many different ways, for Jesus to say, peace be with you and, and go and be healed, I think that has a, a special uh, importance to it. And then lastly, Jesus, again, took special care to point out that her faith made her well, not touching the, the cloak of his garment, uh, but it is by grace that you were saved through faith. He wanted to, to highlight that and to point that out um, so that she wouldn't have this, this misunderstanding. Uh, Steve. Uh, where, where it says uh, her response was one of fear and trembling, we're supposed to fear the Lord. Yes. That's, that's, that's in all throughout the scriptures. Yep. You know, Proverbs 3, 5, 6, and 7. Mm -hmm. uh, trust the Lord with all your heart, lean not of your own understanding, and all the ways acknowledge him, he shall direct your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Yep. The fear of the Lord is a beginning of knowledge, beginning of wisdom. Right? Yeah. And fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So right there, boy, she she got she's got a lot of wisdom. Yep. And her faith, and as Jesus was saying, her faith made her whole, not touching the garment. Yep. Her faith. And she was healed, and there's a lot of a lot of wisdom right there in being healed. Amen. Well, good. Uh, we'll come back next week and we'll look at Jairus. We'll pick up the story there and uh, we'll continue to see, just like we saw this week, this um, dichotomy. I don't know if that's the right word, but um, how Jesus is um, both powerful and uh, compassionate. How he is, uh, we see his, his strength alongside of his mercy. How we see that he is sovereign and yet he is uh, a servant. Uh, this is a, a great place to see that. We see it so clearly with this woman and with Jairus' daughter. Uh, it's kind of cool how these two stories go together and we'll, we'll finish it next week. But for now, let's pray. God, we do thank you that you are the, the sovereign king, that you are overall and yet you made yourself low, that you, you humbled yourself even to the point of death, death on a cross. God, help us to, to imitate that humility. Help us to, to fear the Lord, knowing that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Help us to, to look to you, to realize that uh, we are, are nothing apart from you, and we need to, to seek you uh, for, for anything that we, we hope to, to have or to gain. And uh, Help us to, to honor you today with our, our words, with our thoughts, with our actions, that you might be lifted up and, and honored in our hearts in this place and through our lives. We pray this in, in your name. Amen.